Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another Red Shirt Friday edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. Uh, Jeannie, are you confused? This is not Thursday. What are you doing sitting here <laughs> alongside me? I am here because I want to introduce one of the m- most proficient and elegant um, relationship builder that I know in science communications and probably agriculture. Um, Allison Van, and I hope I don't admit, I always I Van Anningham. do this. Yes, thank you. Van Anningham. Wow, you both got it wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I've been, yeah. Hey, I've been working on it 12 years, Allison. <laughs> well, I've had it for 30, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. You True. picked this last name. Why would I you do, do he that? He didn't tell me his last name until after our first date. <laughs> I think he so was you met in a bar. I think he was hiding it from me. <laughs> Actually, we met at a Super Bowl, a Super Bowl party. <laughs> Fine. So yeah, that's where that's where you pick up a good husband. So they tell me. So that was. Uh, were you Were you in the years. Netherlands? Were you in California? Or were no, you in California. Perth? No, he's a good. He's a Michigan Michigan uh, boy. But he was a yeah. It was at UC Davis in or in Davis, California that I met him. But yeah, I don't know. It's growing on me, I guess. But uh, my kids have it too now. Well, it's so been- it's- <laughs> 30, 30 years, you haven't shed it, so I guess it's growing on you. <laughs> yeah. Coming to us from the University of California, Davis, one of the great researchers and communicators, and as Jenny Schweigert said, a connector, a connector of all things. But if you don't speak scientifically correct, Allison will be the first one to tell you. I can tell you <laughs> firsthand. That's, that's true. It is. Um, so, yeah, thanks for, for having me on. And, um I think a lot of people that work in agricultural research are kind of the connectors between rural and urban, actually, just because we're often living in urban areas but working with um, rural problems. And so you kind of need to learn how to communicate with both groups or you're not going to be very effective. So maybe it's an occupational hazard to learn how to do that. Um, Before Before we we get to what Jenny – oh, now that's really funny, isn't it? What is life like? (laughs) In 2020 in Davis, California. Um, well, we're we're not in full lockdown, but um, the university's on kind of um, only uh, and very very urgent research, which of course is all of my research uh, <laughs> is allowed to get done. So we're kind of staggered as to when we can go in. Um, but the rest of the town, it's summer, so the students aren't necessarily here. I guess it's when fall happens is when the crunch hits, and I, I am pretty sure we'll be online. I, we're meant to be doing a hybrid model, but um, I, the data is not looking too promising at the moment, in my opinion. So, but um, my bedroom, I'm just really learning to love it here. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it, uh, it's a very, very different way of life. As you know, Trent, uh, I travel a lot and um, I 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's suddenly I'm at home and I've got my whole family at home and we went from being empty nesters to very full houses all of a sudden. So yeah, it's uh, quite a change in many ways, but it's, it's okay. Yeah. So you're ready for a meeting in uh, St. Louis sometime really oh, soon. Is that what you just said? Hawaii. Hawaii <laughs> is what I would really be for. So anyone that's looking for a speaker in Hawaii, just let me know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I don't. I, I do. Re- that you. did. That did cause me to remember what you fact checked me on the first time we met, and I was talking about the uh, the Coho. King salmon GMO okay. that was taking place yeah, at the it. time, and and you you corrected me on some little issue, but you did it so eloquently, it was awesome, and we were <laughs> friends for life. I think, I think it was probably that Atlantic salmon cannot intermate or cross with um, Pacific salmon; they're different genuses, like cats and dogs. And so the activists were saying that the Atlantic salmon was going to interbreed with the Pacific salmon, and it's like, yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> That's that's not possible. Well, so maybe it actually, happen. we took. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we took not we, but somebody took DNA from the king salmon, put it in the coho salmon to create a hybrid that would grow faster and be more efficient. No, not a hybrid. It was a genetically engineered or transgenic fish. That's the Aqua Advantage salmon. So See? it has a gene See, Jenny? From a See how quickly she fact checks me? <laughs> I use one word wrong. Hybrid, which would mean natural select or natural mating. And we take a gene and we put it over here. She's awesome. <laughs> it's it, Well, a hybrid's like a mule, right? Rather than, the, so yeah, the, the donkey and the horse had an offspring. Yeah. Do you know why I like mules? I have no idea. <laughs> well, you just told us they're only half an ass. <laughs> they're pretty good racers too. We have some racing mules at the UC Davis, and uh, they do pretty well. So, who knew? Yeah, but I got to tell you, your racing mules at UC Davis do not keep up with the racing mules Bert Johnson had over at Stanford. He's the racing mule king of California. Oh, really? Oh, I don't know. We yes. don't really have to have a little friendly competition. You should research this before you want to bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> Bert Johnson is like famous in racing mules and cow. They got some whole uh, jackpot named after him. Oh, really? Yeah. And he's the head of gynecology at Stanford University. Huh. That's an interesting um, juxtaposition there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, and, and now that I've completely hijacked Jenny's plan, uh, but. About 15 years ago, Allison, I was doing a story on the University of Idaho who had cloned the the famous racing mule. Uh, his name will come to me in a second. And the reason that they cloned him was because that they determined that equine cells were resistant to cancer. Do you know anything about that project? I remember they cloned a mule, um, but I, I didn't remember there was a biomedical reason. But, of course, mules are normally infertile because they're a hybrid between two species that have a different number of chromosomes. So they, they basically – Are you sure they're not a GMO? I think they might be a I'm GMO. I'm absolutely sure they're not a GMO. <laughs> <laughs> Although that word doesn't really mean anything. So if you want to call them a GMO, that's up to you. But they're definitely not genetically engineered. <laughs> Okay, from now on, would you please stop couching your real feelings and just tell us what you think? Okay. It'll be a well, lot better for the uh, Australians are very, very subtle when they're um, talking about things. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. You, can I, can you're I from Calgary. All you Calgary girls. Yeah, you can, Jenny. Go for it. <laughs> be from Australia. Is that what you want? You want to be from Australia too? Oh my goodness. I would love to go to Australia. Love to go to Australia. Well, but, I, I see Qantas just stopped all flights until March. So <laughs> good luck yeah, with that. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll be a while. I think. Yeah, I think so. That can happen. But, yeah. um, Did- did Qantas really just stop all flights until March? Because I had something brewing in Western Australia. Well, I think that, I read that. Yeah, I, I, and I'm. There are other, you know, United flies down there, but they're on very limited um, number of people that can enter the country each day. I believe it's maybe four thousand, um, and so mm-hmm. like that's not very many planes, and they're they're trying right. to um, stop yeah. the. The pandemic, you know, there's some states there that are uh, zero, and so they're trying to protect them from coming in. The state I'm from has has cases, Victoria, so they're in, they're on full lockdown. But it's it's happening everywhere. All the humans. <laughs> have you have you been to Bendigo? Bendigo, I have Bendigo, been to Bendigo, Victoria. Yes, I have. I spoke in Bendigo. It was fabulous little community. Oh, good. Yep. Those rural towns are great in the in Australia. Great places. They have really good meat pies too. That's uh, mm. different flavors. Different flavors of meat pies. They're the best. Uh, Jenny, <laughs> you'd be interested to know that the only lamb harvest facility in the world that I've been in was just down the road from Bendigo, Victoria. Oh, I sheep people who are from Australia are so knowledgeable, way beyond any one I think I've met in the U.S. I got to spend a whole week and a half with a couple on a trip in Europe, and I learned so much. It was crazy. Lots well, of sheep guess down what there. I have to. I have to say, uh, 70 million to be exact. And in 1964, when wool was king, there were 150 million sheep. So we've got half the sheep in Australia that we once had. I have to take a break. We're way over time. I want to remind you just right off the bat today, the stand at Paxton County. Make sure that you get the opportunity to watch this on Netflix. It was one of the top 20 watched movies. In the month of May, and Allison, I don't want you to watch it just because I'm in it. I want you to watch it because it shares the challenges that animal owners have all across this country. Get more details at uh, Netflix, The Stand at Paxton County. Watch it this weekend in your bedroom when you're not doing other things like talking on the phone like Allison. We'll be back with more at Roll Out after this. Boy, what did we accomplish in that segment, Jenny? Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Luce, alongside Jenny Schweigert, Allison Van Nenningham. <laughs> Closer. Getting there. Getting there. <laughs> might be there by the end. Yeah, it might be there by the end. Yeah, we'll be there by the end. <laughs> Jenny, take it away. You had a plan. Okay. So one of the reasons that we invited you here, um, this last week there was a company that had a commercial that came out. Um, and I, I don't want to call that, that company out, but I do want to make sure that listeners and viewers know what we're talking about because my darling father-in-law 
reminded me that he did not see the commercial or know anything about it. So we have a commercial that came out this week um, talking about methane. It was incorrect information. They have more or less led people to believe that it was research that was done at UC Davis, University of California, Davis. Um, so I wanted to, and we, yesterday's conversation, we talked about this a lot and we talked about building relationships and that that's how a lot of our buying decisions truly are made. Um, and you are a great relationship connector builder. Um, and I want to know what your opinion is of the reaction that was seen by the agriculture community and not all of the agricultural community because it definitely, I don't want to paint a wide brush, but there were many people who um, really gave that commercial legs. And, and so how do you feel about the way that the response that you did see? Yeah, so certainly the Twitter feed lit up pretty quickly. Um, and I think I was particularly interested just because I work at UC Davis, see? Right. Um, and of, of course, I'm familiar with Aramaeus Cabrab, who, uh, whose research was kind of alluded to. And, and obviously Frank Mitlone is in my department as well. Um, and I, I was, I was frustrated, um, because we, we do research with with different companies at times, and and there are certain protocols that that have to happen um, before mm -hmm. research is is replicated, and um, that you know that what you're saying is actually supported by the data. And so, I felt like that that particular um, company was was pushing this this um, particular feed additive, lemongrass. Um, as being a, a, a proven solution that's backed up by research and that it was um, it was basically using this science to try to reduce methane emissions. And I just don't think that the data is there to support that. Um, and if you're going to make farmers adopt any um, protocol or, or feed additive or whatever, it has to be based on reproducible science. If it's not reproducible, it's just an anecdote. Um, and I think that that is what really got to me, more especially when it's my department that's uh, in the in the spotlight. And um, when you do research with companies, it's it, it's you publish it and, and you have agreements that you are going to publish it irrespective of what the data shows. In other words, even if it doesn't agree with what the company wants it to say or hopes that it might say, it still gets published. But there is embargoes. You have to, you know, give it to them 30 days mm -hmm. beforehand. So you can't just freely speak as I am here because I, I don't do any work with this company. Um, and it is to me for the marketers to take research that hasn't yet been published, let alone replicated, and right. put this huge marketing campaign, which wouldn't have been inexpensive. And then there's this whole accompanying thing with expert interviews with all these sustainability people. And they're just saying things. And it's like, where's the data to even support what's being said here? And so I found that frustrating. And I, more generally, I think I've said this to you before, Jenny, I think marketers are, are actually the enemy of scientists <laughs> because we work really hard to get different, you know, things to, to work, be it um, GMOs or, um, um, you know, feed additives, which we've been working on forever, right? This is not the first right. one that's come along. I know Hermaeus has done work with sea 
seaweed and there's NOP and, I mean, basically a total mixed ration, if you think about it, is a way to reduce methane emissions because you're giving them high-energy feed that they can convert to, to gain instead of high cellulosic roughage. Um, and just the way that it, methane was presented with the gas masks and the farts and it was just like, it was cringeworthy and an embarrassment. And I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, who are you going for here? Um, but, but Allison, let me get to what really drives me nuts. And that is that that video comes out. It, it has no scientific validity whatsoever. And really, it, apparently it doesn't matter. And, and I'm posing this in the question is, how do we fix it? Because the same day, there was a rethinking methane produced, and I believe that was released by the UC Davis, right? I think that was Frank, yeah, talking about the carbon cycle. And, it was. And it, it is. But, but it had yeah. it had, it had, it had all the science that you're alluding to that people need to know. And in my loose from the hip, I said, hey, if you've watched this video of this XYZ company, then you need to watch Rethinking Methane because it seems the life cycle of methane is 10 years, the carbon cycle and the relationship in methane and how it converts that and utilizes and produces CO2, which then feeds the plants. It was tremendous. The science was fabulous. And in the first 24 hours, hundreds of thousands of people watched the XYZ video, which we won't name. 1,065 people watched Rethinking Methane from University of California, Davis, and the global authority on greenhouse gas emissions, Dr. Frank Mintlerner. So the real question is, marketers are the enemy of science. scientists, I believe that, but how do we get the scientists heard? Because as Jenny's alluding to, we were the ones spreading all of this misinformation instead of sharing, hey, you saw that video. Instead, watch this YouTube piece called Rethinking Methane. We didn't do that. Yeah, well, it's it's been a, a, a constant battle to get science heard, right? I, I mean, that's that's true in many aspects of our life today without getting into specifics. <laughs> if it's not evident that uh, we're kind of losing that battle, mm-hmm. I don't know when when in history it, it is would be more evident. Um, and I think that science in general has had a hard time getting, you know, uh, it's sensational um, fear-mongering always beats um, calming, rational uh, thought. And so it's it, mm-hmm. if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and that's what uh, marketers capitalize on. And they know what buttons to push to get people to watch things. You know, you're not going to watch a boring science documentary if there's a good... Um, you know, scary thing on instead. So we've, we've, we struggle with that. I, I think more generally what, what concerns me is that, um, if, if these companies are going to interact and, and try and support research into sustainability solutions, which I'm absolutely supportive of, just to be clear, then they need to be uh, honest players about it. And if, if the data isn't supporting what they're, that what they're testing, they can't just continue on as if as if the data did show that. And you know, we had a similar Correct. situation with McDonald's um, funded a study on the best way to to house chickens for um, laying chickens, and they compared three different cage systems. I don't know if you remember this. It was the Sustainable Egg Coalition. They compared conventional cages, furnished cages, and and um, um, 
no cages. And yeah. basically the free data that, yeah, no, not free range, whatever you call it, cage free. Um, well, basically lo- the data, loose housing. Yeah, yeah. The, the data yeah. showed on almost all of the metrics of sustainability that the furnished one that was kind of the middle of the road and it had the best outcome in terms of the environment, in terms of economics, in terms of chicken health. And they said, well, that's nice, thanks for that, but we're going to go with the um, no cages. And so I'm like, so why did you even sponsor the research? If you're just going to go with what your gut tells you is what um, sustainable is, then don't do the research. But if you're going to do the research and you're going to stick a university's name on it, you can't just in- pretend like the data came out the way you wanted it to or or not even acknowledge that it didn't. Um, and who knows? It hasn't been published yet. So you oh, don't uh, go you, – you can't go uh, to press actually, with the – Actually, they – can- they knew what the outcome was wanted. They wanted the outcome, and when it didn't match what they wanted, they did what they wanted to do anyway. They were surprised that the outcome and the science did not verify what they were already marketing. That's what happened. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think that they're they're I I'm. They know that they're going to upset the agriculture community. They know they're going to upset the science community. I don't think that these are marketers who are necessarily um, uneducated or don't understand the science. They understand strategic movements. They understand what reaction they can um, churn up with these very upsetting and angry types of campaigns. I, I don't think that this is, you know, a lot of people are like, well, they don't know the science. They don't know the science. I feel like they do know the science, but it doesn't matter. They're finding a loophole so that they can still anger all of these people who then give mm-hmm. that campaign legs. I've got to give something legs and that's the clock roll route. We're halfway through. We'll be back with more. I want to remind you, certified Piedmontese, go to LoneCreekCattleCompany.com. Excuse me, it's LoneCreekCattleCo.com, the certified Piedmontese system. Give leg up in marketing to the consumer, capturing more of the consumer's food dollar. Thanks to the myostatin gene. We should get Allison to weigh in on the myostatin gene. It's all about tenderness. More details at LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Second half of rollout right after this. Welcome back to Roll Routes. Trent Luce alongside Allison and Jenny. I disagree, Jenny. I don't think any of the marketers who are trying to generate revenue, actually all the marketers for any XYZ burger company cares about is they care about their own job. And so in order to preserve their own job, they try to generate numbers and buzz and they look at the statistics on they don't think about the farmers going to be upset. We're such a minute number of people. 120,000 farm families feed 80, produce 80% of the food grown in the United States. That's not enough for anybody to even give two thoughts about in terms of that's going to be upset. Those marketers are simply trying to find a way to keep their job in place by impressing their whoever their boss is. And that is, as a marketer myself, that is completely accurate and i i don't i think i just painted a very wide brush when i said that um there are certain campaigns that we can now look back on we talked about yesterday there are certain situations where we could learn from history where we now know that the strategy at hand 
was to upset the ag community and then have whatever it is they're doing go viral or get people upset. Um, and we, I mean, we know that from the PETA bread and FFA situation for sure. Um, so I guess that's where I was going with that. I, I uh, that Jenny, I'm sorry. Are- uh, 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 Jenny, I'm sorry. You cut out what, what situation? The pita bread and FFA national FFA. <laughs> okay. Okay. An animal rights. Well, the the other example. The other example of that was I think the, you know, actually here's a good case in point. Chipotle was the absolute worst at going out and irritating the food producing sector, the farmers and catering to what they thought their customer was. But that came back to bite them. You don't hear anything about it. They're struggling to even be relevant today, given a period of time, if those are your ethics. They even had one of their marketers say, whether it's true or not, we need to get people riled up about it. I can find that direct quote. And uh, that's what we, we just need to be resilient. We need to continue to educate the people around us. And in my opinion, Allison, when something like this XYZ video shows up, we all go to great lengths to make sure that people have the resource that explains that, like rethinking methane. I think that we just, instead of sharing what they've done, share the answer, share the solution. That's what we need to be a part of. Yeah, well, it's, that's kind of the, inf- the deficit model, that, that, that if you give them more information, they'll change their minds. And I think that the science community or psychom literature suggests that actually the the appeal to emotions is is actually what changes people's minds so what what yeah. is it that you have in common with your audience um that you that you have a shared value about and i i think that um we do have a shared interest in trying to reduce the environmental footprint of agriculture and i think when you're distracted by um pushing approaches that don't do that, then it's it, it's actually going against the shared values of the consumer. And I, I think this is more generally seen with, um, you know, these campaigns that target against certain technologies, the, the non-GMO project or RBST free milk or whatever, you name it. Um, you're actually working against your own stated best interests of, of trying to reduce the environmental footprint of food production. And when these big companies start pushing um, farmers to raise their animals a certain way or feed them, I don't know, lemongrass. Um, if that's not backed by actual data, then you're going in the wrong direction. Um, and it, to me, it's just a bit of a greenwashing campaign. Um, and there's so much good work that's been done. And I know I'm a geneticist, but if you look at the impact that genetics has had on reducing the environmental footprint of, of beef production and milk production, for example, it's what a third of what it was in the 1940s due to improved genetics. And I'll give the mm-hmm. nutritionists a little bit of credit, but, um, you know, I think those stories are amazing. You know, we've gone from 26 million dairy cows to 9 million dairy cows, but produce 1.6 times more milk. You know, that is that is where the sustainability gains are. And, and it's a great story and one that you don't hear very often. Um, and so I think that's where I would rather direct the conversation than fighting about whether cows fart. You know, it's like it's just it's such a juvenile discussion when there's really important issues that need addressing. Um, and so I guess that's where I would like to take the conversation. So I think the best formula to explain that, and I've used it time and time again, and people see the picture 
In 1900, it required 10 acres of land to produce enough food to feed one person for a year. To qualify that 10 acres, five acres was actual food production. Five acres was food to feed the horses and the mules that it required to produce the food. So it was 10 acres in 1900. In 2020, it takes less than a third of an acre to produce enough food to feed that same person for one year. I don't know of a better analogy that explains the whole story, but I can share that. And then, boom, you get some fancy little video comes. It goes out the window. So we have to find a way. Uh, I've lost. He, he's tried. I've lost him, too. As well. <laughs> I, I, while we wait for him to catch up with us, he can be a little slow sometimes. So where do you start with? the relationship building, do you start with trying to make that connection with the company or is this something that you go and try to enlist the government to help try to change laws and things like that? Where do you, where would you start? Oh, with this one, I think it's, it's a hard one. Um, And it, it, it's strange to me that the, the company wouldn't have consulted, um, with the scientists that work in this area. So they had a lot of expert interviews, but, but it, there was no one that kind of um, was, was working in this area. And I think that would be an obvious place. So a lot of their sustainability people was talking, but they didn't seem to, to grasp what was, what, what was going on there. But typically, you know, depending on which audience I'm talking to, um, then that's kind of how you determine, you know, what's the likely shared value that I might have with that audience. It's a bit hard when you're doing a, you know, a YouTube video or something because it's everybody, right? right? And so what right. I guess what really frustrates me is I look at the the marketing budget that would have been associated to do that campaign. Oh, and insane. If, if I had that sort of marketing budget, I could I do a really, you know, amazing job. And it's that's the trouble is there's no real um, – you know, resources to do a good job of putting out, like what you said, um, trend of, you know, a, a YouTube video, like what Frank did. So he's been, Frank's been working to try to get some resources to help tell that story in an engaging way that captures people's attention. Um, and that's been, I think, a disadvantage because who's going to fund that? <laughs> you know? right. um, there's companies that will fund the, the the, the farts, but you know, who's going to fund the, 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 uh, the science? Allison, I need to correct you. Cause I have a friend, his name is Frank Mitlerner and he says the cow belches, it doesn't fart. Just saying. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you know, they've got to have done that just for the stir, right? Just oh, for the absolutely. Stir it is all about and, the you know, stir. It's, it's, they're stirring the slurry. That's what they're doing. They're stirring the slurry. <laughs> hey, that's just maybe that's my campaign. To the bugs. It's disrespectful to the methanogens that are doing their job in the rumen. You know, it's uh, they're, they're an important group, well, that lot. <laughs> not to mention the grad student who was trying to duplicate the research that supposedly was done in Mexico. She, I understand, has just put time like crazy yeah. into trying to replicate that and has not found well, and, the and same findings. I mean, the Mexicans, the, if you look at that paper, they did, it was a small number of cows. I think there was maybe eight. It was a small research study. I don't doubt that they found what they found, but the thing with science is it has to be replicated. And so I think that right. that's where I, you know, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the Mexican research, but you have to look and see, well, does, is this replicated? 
is it reproducible? And that's part of the scientific method is, is making sure something's reproducible before you take it wide stream. And one of the weird things that they kept talking about is that they've made this open source. It's like, what do you mean? It's, it's lemongrass. How do you make lemongrass open source? So it seemed to be suggesting that somehow they were releasing a trade secret so everyone could use it. And it's like, this isn't a computer code. It's, it's lemongrass and peer reviewed publication is making everything open source anyway. So that's not a thing in this case. It was a very strange. Yeah take um suggesting that somehow we keep things secret normally i want to point out that today we're wound up because of xyz video Uh this happens every single day and and if you don't think that people in agriculture i can take you to people who are marketing grass-fed beef versus conventional corn-fed beef they're using the same unscientific Mm -hmm. verification to market their product so i want to take it at the big picture and we'll probably have to do it in the last segment, but we're not just talking about this one particular case. We're talking about it happens every single day, even within our own community. And yeah. I think that's no, what it, aggravates yeah. us the most. It, it's not just this one particular situation. I think Trent and I were both like, here we go again. Where, where can we stop? How do we stop this? Well, and, and I, I mean, some people, you know, were saying it's great that at least there's an acknowledgement that agriculture is part of the solution. You know, I guess if you want to look at making lemons out of lemonade or whatever the runner is there, um, you know, it's great that companies are thinking about this. It was just, it was the execution that was the fail. It was, it's, it, and so I think to the fact that the, the narrative is starting to look at, well, what can we, how, what innovations can we, use to reduce the environmental footprint of agriculture. Well, I would argue that's pretty much everyone, my entire career. Um, but the fact that that's becoming of interest to the public is a good thing. Um, but it was it was a fail in the, in the execution, I guess. See, I'm trying to use sensationalism. I'm trying to use emotion with my crawler. And you got to jump all over me saying that it's not <laughs> scientifically married. You can't make... By the way, the same company that we're talking about is now investing in cannabis to make beer. That should really get people upset. I have to take a break. We are at the final segment. We'll be back. One more roll route. Neogen, by the way, I want to just throw out a little plug for shedding a future. Ah, Allison could weigh in on this one. This is right up her alley, her bailiwick. Neogen is looking at the genomics and the alleles are present to increase our predictability in the genetics that we produce. People are getting their pets tested to see what lineage their pet is. That's crazy. When you start testing pets for marbling and tenderness, then we'll talk. More details <laughs> about what's going on shedding a light on your genetic future. Nijin.com, the last segment of Roll Rod happening right after this. You know, actually, before I let you go, I want to remind you that the Piedmontese system is fueled by identifying these genomes. If you go forward in food production without knowing what genetics are present, I'm not talking about just the physical appearance or even measuring data anymore. We're looking at the alleles that are present. We do it with the boars. We know what we're going to get from a meat quality standpoint and a performance and cell productivity. So are cattlemen. Cattlemen are looking at what their opportunities are. That's what we need to be focused on. That's why I love working with Lone Creek, who utilizes the technology and Neogen, making it possible. All right, we'll be back with the final segment. Roll route today after this. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce alongside Allison Jenny. 
Uh, by the way, thanks for covering for me while I had that little technical snafu in the middle there. Oh, we have it. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're trying to tell me. We don't really need you, Trent. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Oh, thanks, Jenny. <laughs> Allison, where do we go from here? We need solutions. And the, the solution has to be geared towards making science known. I don't know if you see the comments, but we've got one of the great animal researchers and animal well-being who's weighed in and, and chimed in here, Dr. Jeanine Johnson at Oklahoma State University. And I'm, I'm calling her out because she struggles with the same thing. Her science flies in the face of what most restaurants and food service people want to do with their pork supplies. And she's pulling her hair out because the science doesn't verify what they're talking about they want to have happen. So really, at the end of the day, the solution is, how do we make the science sexy? And as I said, we struggle with that, right? And I think that everyone that works in this area that um, sees what I, what concerns me is that the sustainability um, metrics of, of these companies are not evidence-based um, and they're letting emotion drive what should be very hardcore, hard-nosed decisions based on certain environmental metrics. And so because sustainability kind of has no definition, it's a little bit like beautiful, it's in the eye of the beholder. And we need to have ensure that we're actually going in the right direction as it relates to sustainability rather than going with what feels good. And I feel like there's a lot of emotion that is going into these sustainability decisions like the, the uh, cage-free chicken decision that absolutely is not supported by the evidence. And if, if we're not going to take it in, in an evidence-based way, we're, mm. we're going to go in the wrong direction. And that is going to be bad for farmers. It's going to be bad for the environment. And ultimately, it'll be bad for the company. And I look at the, the history, I don't know if you remember, RBS recombinant bovine somatotrop and remember you know, the brouhaha around that and then there was the absence labeling and and ultimately what happened that product is no longer available to anyone and so the short-term market advantage that companies got by being rbst free is gone but so is the nine percent reduction in environmental footprint that was associated with that product so it's gone from the market so some might say that's great, but you better own that increased environmental footprint as a result of not having access to that technology. Allison, you bring up, I think, by, by the way, I cut my teeth in this whole realm that we're talking about today with RSBT because <laughs> I saw that uh, if we lose this technology, all technologies are subject to fail. And the reason I said that in 2000, by the way, it's how I met Dr. Frank Mettlerner at the Western United Dairymen meeting. And I, I saw that this is a technology that's proven safe a technology that reduces our footprint on the planet. It's all the efficient, all the buzzwords are there, and yet people are rejecting it, and they don't know why. And you, people market RBS, no artificial growth hormones used, and in the bottom, right. little bitty print, on every single one of those labels, it says, science does not verify that there's any difference between RBSD and a conventional milk, but it didn't matter. But it, to me, when we lost that, it was just the snowball effect to every technology. Now, here's where I was going with that whole long out, too long of a story. We lost it not because of the animal rights activists. We lost it because dairy farmers started talking about why we shouldn't use it. And now here we are in 2020 where we've had, as you eloquently described, 9 million dairy cows producing 1.6 times more milk than we did in 1945. And everybody says, we got too much milk. See, we don't need a technology like RBSD because we already have too much milk. When you start rejecting technologies based upon falsehoods that are not scientifically driven, you're subject to lose every single technology you have. 
I, I agree. <laughs> and that's part of the reason that I'm very outspoken around the, the science and as it relates to these innovations is we're going in the wrong direction. Um, and if, if we keep doing this, you know, what technologies is going to be left on the table? And, and that ultimately, um, is, is worrying, um, because there are a lot of technologies that have reduced the environmental footprint. And if, if we're going after, um, basically just a stunt, um, then we're not really moving in the right direction. And, and farmers are going to be asked to use these or not use technologies that could have helped them um, and in, and maybe adopt, you know, silly things that, that aren't going to really make a difference. Um, and that is not going to be great for – it's going to be a triple negative for sustainability, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> so worse for the environment, worse for economics, and worse from a social perspective because we've just increased the environmental footprint of food production and the cost. So, By the way, if you strike out three times – if you have three strikes in baseball, you're out. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jenny, I, so, I want you yeah. – Jenny, you're back. I want you to weigh in. But first, I also want to get Allison's take on this because I've suddenly gotten very engulfed in the – UK US trade deal in Allison the last week of February, first week of March. I was in England and just trying to get a, a feel for consumer attitudes toward US production. And it's still very <laughs> anti technology. And, and I get in these yeah. arguments with the economists who say you have to produce what the consumer wants. When the consumer wants you to go broke in the production of their food, is that really what they want? And I don't think we do a good job explaining many of the technological uh, rejections they want us to implement. It's going to cost them more money or else we're going to go out of business. And we've seen it happen globally, farmers going out of business because they can't continue to jump over the hurdles that government and public perception puts in front of them. What's your take on that? Well, you know, that's it's an, it's an interesting situation in the UK because it imports a tremendous amount of its product, right? I think it's 60%. It's, it, it it's is, only 60%. 40% self-sufficient. So it, that's kind of ironic. And um, when you listen to, to them talk, they want this kind of idyllic agricultural system. That's actually not going to be economically viable. Um, and so I think that, that that fairy tale, unfortunately, is kind of the reality that we have to deal with. And so I think one of the things that I like to do is, is look at opportunity costs. So, okay, we can... We cannot use this or we cannot adopt that, but what's the implications? And so if, for example, we hadn't allowed artificial insemination to be used in the dairy industry, how many, you know, many million more cows would we have to produce the same amount of product? If we hadn't done genetic improvement in our beef cattle, what would be the, the, the implications of that in terms of sustainability? And that... Um, that opportunity cost, I think, is what the marketers don't own. So, okay, my papaya is GMO free, but what did I have to do then to protect it from, you know, ring spot virus or whatever the whatever the technology they're not doing? Because there is a very real opportunity cost involved there that um, is is hidden under that label. It's got this kind of aura of of greenness, but there's consequences to not adopting technology or not using technology. The place I saw that up close and personal is the state of Florida has been dealing with greening and their citrus, mm -hmm. and it's, it's mm -hmm. devastating. And I was in a Florida orange grove, and I said, couldn't you do a genetically modified variety and uh, circumvent this greening? And he told me, yes, we could, but we don't know how to educate the consumer about the benefit. I I'm like, that's, a, same thing in that's, California. A that's a defeatist attitude. How can you do that? Well, I got, I can't avoid it, but I've got a container of orange juice in my fridge that's got a non-GMO label on it. 
I'm like, guys, you are cutting off your nose despite your face here. So, okay, good on you. Non-GMO, we'll, we'll get our oranges from some other country then, I guess. You know, it's just, it's insane. Um, and it's this short-term market advantage to the long-term detriment of the sustainability of agriculture. That's what worries me. I love paying the geneticist versus the economist. That's a fantastic discussion. <laughs> I, I think it's also something to be said, the sustainability of farmers financially as well, because in many of these situations, we've lost farmers because they cannot sustain their business financially. Yeah, well, I, I was watching the this xyz with the lemongrass thing and it's like so <laughs> what what's the plan here guys so yeah. we're gonna grow lemongrass and and i think your hamburgers mostly come from cull dairy cows right it's it's not so they're, they're looking at finishing beef steers on this and i'm like god if you're putting your beef steers into hamburger you must have some pretty crappy steers it's like nothing yeah. about the whole premise made any sense it to doesn't me. make and, any and sense actually the uh, environmental footprint of cull dairy beef isn't all bad either you know those girls pump out a lot of milk and a couple of calves they they earn their keep and so they their footprint's not too bad, uh, relatively speaking, because they, they can amortize it with their milk. Okay, Allison, you're always holding me accountable. I'm going to put you on the spot in the last two minutes. Uh-oh. Because you brought up what's been my main topic of this week, and that's been artificial insemination because we're uh, synchronizing and artificially inseminating cows. So I happen to know what year the first woman was artificially inseminated. Can you tell me? I, no, I, I, don't, I, I don't, don't know the answer to that question. So would it be before Louise Brown? I'm going to go with 1962. I would have gone about there. Uh, Jenny, you want to weigh in before I give the answer? Uh, 67. In Scotland in 1790, <laughs> a gentleman took semen from a man, put it in a syringe, and successfully impregnated a woman. The first artificial wow. insemination. Yeah. Okay. And here's I, what I, it, here's what intrigues me the most. Artificial insemination of women did not become successful until after 1936 because it wasn't until 1936 we figured out that women's menstrual cycle was 28 days. Are you kidding me? How do you not know that for 2,000 years? <laughs> Probably never asked a woman. If you've lived with a woman, you know. That's almost as mind-boggling as XYZ's commercial. <laughs> By the way, in 1955, 50,000 55, women were artificially inseminated. All right, Jenny, take us really? on. We have one minute. Summarize where we're going to go. I, I think, you know, we didn't get into the relationship building part, but I think that <clears throat> from this, you know, this has been a really, really great brainstorming session in my eyes. And, you know, we've talked about all the ins and outs. And none of the three of us have the golden answer as to how to approach this and how to stop this from happening. But we've put a lot of information out there to help others understand what really is occurring behind the scenes leading us to these points. Um, so I, I just I would encourage people to keep reaching out, um, reaching out to Trent. And if you have additional ideas on how we can stop situations like xyz and and again i don't think that it was we were flaming necessarily just about the xyz commercial mm. it's the time and time and time history just keeps repeating itself and it has got to stop the australian can have the last word the californian <laughs> from australia 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know I hear agriculture's pain, but it's, it's, it's actually not just agriculture this happens in. I mean, look at the vaccine right. debate at the moment. So it, it is hard to get objective evidence to be what people take uh, because they make decisions based on emotions and, and what their friends are doing. And so um, you need to change the narrative to appeal to that emotions. And that's where I think we struggle a little bit because um, at least I'm very convinced by facts and data, but normal humans aren't. And so <laughs> I need to change my message to appeal to what normal people make decisions on. And that's not necessarily objective evidence. And you can see Allison take that um, on the movie, the documentary Food Evolution. And you can see for yourself the way that she approaches situations like that and builds a dialogue and a conversation with someone who disagrees. And I have to say, we got to go. My take-home message, Allison reminded me, somebody needs to stand up for the room and bacteria. I'm going to be that guy. <laughs> We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. We all three remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.